All right, so uh, I'm gonna probably make some mistakes as I go here. I haven't spoken in this room in over a year. Uh, I haven't preached in front of a camera in actually a, quite a few months as well. So this is all kind of new. Uh, but what we're gonna do is I'm gonna have a PowerPoint there, but really we're gonna be tracking with the Bible today. Uh, the PowerPoint's gonna have some aids to help, but really it's gonna be you guys interacting with God's word. And as it is with this being a historical connection to the seven churches that actually existed, I wanted to be able to begin by providing a little bit of context. And this won't take very long, but hopefully it'll be something that's helpful. So like I mentioned in the beginning, there's seven churches that the, that, that the Apostle John is given a revelation from God to be able to then pass on a message to. Now, these seven churches were meant to be geographical locations, as you see there on the map, and they're in Asia Minor and what is now modern-day Turkey. But then you also see that these seven churches were, in a way, kind of connected. If you start from Ephesus, which we start today, the seven churches are going to be addressed in a travel route going north and then going east and it ends with Laodicea in the south. So if you were to take a trip starting with Ephesus, which was a, a, just a, a really, um, up, not just up and coming, but it was a thriving metropolis in the Roman Empire at that time. If you begin there where most things do, and you start traveling and visiting different cities, you would actually make kind of the same route to see and address these seven churches that the Apostle John then was given revelation uh, to address as well. And so this is actually how our series is gonna go. Next week, we're gonna see Smyrna, and then week afterwards, Pergamos, got Tyre, Sardis, Philadelphia, and it ends with Laodicea. And so today we start with the biggest city out of the seven, the most important one, the one that is the hub, and the one that was the capital in many different ways of that area, uh, both culturally, financially, but then also geographically. Now, the seven churches are specific people, specific locations, specific circumstances, but you're gonna see that the way that the seven churches are addressed, there's truths for all Christians for all time. And Gabe had mentioned that in a previous sermon as well. So it's not just where, okay, that happened 2000 years ago. It's in a place that you know doesn't even have a church anymore, which is actually the case for most of these churches, if not all of them, that the original churches aren't there anymore. But there's definitely a connection, which is why many of the passages end with those who have ears, let them hear what the spirit says to the churches. We are part of the churches 2000 years later. So may our years be open and my hearts, our hearts be soft in the exact same way. I also want to share a few patterns that these seven letters carry. Now, it's not where every single passage has all of the same components, but there's definitely a shared number of things that every single letter covers. Okay, so there's usually a reference to Christ. And Gabe had preached from his first two sermons, giving all these titles and all these actions, all these uplifting doxologies to Jesus. And each church is going to have like one little paragraph or one little quality or characteristic that it picks up from chapter one and say, you know what, that's the same Jesus that's going to give this message to this church. So there's a connection to Christ that you'll find. But then in many of the passages, you also find that there's a praise for that church. In fact, the praise is given to every single church except for the last one, Laodicea. And when we get there, you'll see why. Oftentimes there's a criticism then to add on to the praise, like the other side of things where this church is good at doing this, but you know what? There's a shortcoming. And for many of the churches, there's a mention of a criticism. There's then a next step. There's an application then for the recipients of that message to take. If this is where you are, then the spirit is telling you, do this. Jesus, the one that holds you, the one that walks amongst you is saying, do this to most likely be made right with him. And most of the 
particular applications relate to repentance, but you should do something. And then at the very end, there's a connection to a promise. And when we get to all the way to the end, to the end of Revelation 19 and 20, you'll see these beautiful promises fulfilled and sceneries and nature and everything becoming perfect. Well, there's a connection at the end of every single letter to the churches that ties you to the end of the revelation. It's because churches come and go, but God's plan is what carries it. And the kingdom of God is the central message and a central vision here. It's always about the reign and the rule of God. It's about the kingdom coming into fruition in all of its various phases. And so at the end, a church may thrive, it may grow, it may become huge, but then most churches, if not all churches at some point, will die because the church is not the end. The church is the means for disciple-making and for preaching the gospel and to live out and to share the kingdom of God. So it's not about the church even, but it's ultimately about the kingdom of God. And you'll see that reference too as well. So let's go ahead and start with chapter 2, verse 1. The passage is up there, and that's intentional with each section so that you could just be staring at God's word, whether it's in front of you or it's on a screen. So you can kind of engage with it the best that you can. So starting from chapter 2, verse 1, the revelation says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. You caught that from chapter one, right? That imagery that John was able to see. Well, there's a few things that then you can make a connection to. Well, first of all, Jesus, if he is the one that is not only the one that, that, that bought the church with his blood, but then he also has a relationship with the churches now. He's walking amongst them. He's not somebody that, that did something for the church, created the church, and then he's out of the way. Jesus is walking amongst his people, as it points out in verse 1. There's a relationship there. Jesus knows them. Jesus is near them. And Jesus is actively moving around them. And that's the way every church should strive to be. Because Jesus is going to be in the middle of his church, but it's more of whether we ourselves recognize and pursue that relationship to be near to Jesus. You could be a church, as you will find in this letter, but not be very close to Jesus. Jesus was walking amongst his people, but his people could choose to be afar from him. And so this verse kind of creates the nearness by which Jesus not only desires to be, but Jesus is because in Ephesians, he's brought people together, broken down the walls of the enmity that separate people so that they could be near each other and near him. And you see that abundantly clear. If you keep going on, it helps to be able to learn a little bit about the church in Ephesus then. If Jesus is walking amongst this group of people gathered in Ephesus and, and making disciples and worshiping him and preaching the kingdom of God, what is Ephesus like? Well, there's a few things that I want to highlight. Number one, like I said, it's a commercial hub. It's also a financial hub. And there's a lot of politics that goes through there. So it's an important place in the Roman Empire. It would be like a, a Chicago or Los Angeles uh, right now. It's a place where people go to visit. It's a place where people go to worship. Uh, there's a famous temple of Artemis where there was a, you know, all of this that was chronicled in Acts uh, 18 through 20. Uh, this was a well-known location, a well-known city. Uh, there's then filled with tons of pagan worship, pagan culture, and pagan practices. And so that's to be mindful because you then see how God birthed the church in a place like this. 
You don't expect that. But then again, God can do what we don't expect. This city is second to Rome in importance. So it's very, very important. And we see here that Paul made several visits and he stayed there for quite a while. When we look at Acts chapter 18, you'll find that Paul visited there at the end of his second missionary journey. He stayed for a little bit, not that long, but he was able to leave Priscilla and Aquila behind. So it was the beginnings of where disciples were being made and the gospel was being preached and people were coming to faith in Christ. In Acts 19, Paul makes a second visit to Ephesus. And at that time, he found 12 men who were willing to follow Jesus, even though before they were people that followed John the Baptist. He questioned them, he preached Jesus, and he asked them if they were baptized with the Holy Spirit, which at that time, during that unique season, it was uh, the, the, the next step, the fulfillment of the ministry of the Messiah, the, the risen Savior, was that then the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And you see this in Acts. And so these 12 men became people that sought to follow Jesus and that sought to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit came. So this was very supernatural. This was amazing and beautiful. Paul taught in the synagogue for three months, but then there were a lot of critical people, so then he left. But then he ended up teaching at this lecture hall for two years in Ephesus. So this was not an itinerant ministry for Paul. He was there for a long time. If you're there for two years plus, and you're preaching the gospel all the time, and he's doing this day in and day out, he developed certainly a reputation for himself, but then the people that came to believe in Jesus, they not only were individuals, they started to become a church and a church that was becoming a family, families consisting of families and individuals. That kind of gives you a little bit of the context then of why Paul addressed them that way in Ephesians, right? Paul told them to, to walk worthy of their calling to be filled with the Holy Spirit, to walk as the children of light. It's in Ephesians where you see addressed specifically the relationship of husband and wife, of parents to children, of bosses and servants. Why would, be, why would he be able to give all of that insight? It's because he was there for two and a half years. He knows them. He's seen them. And he gives very specific encouragements to them. Now, this is a church that started to mature as well. This is the church that was challenged by Paul to produce all kinds of fruit, but not fruit that they produced out of their own effort, but ones that were created and given and provided in the power of the Holy Spirit. This was a church that became a hub for Christian missions. You see names that are familiar to us when we read the Bible, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, Paul, Timothy, John, and Luke, all of these people connected to Ephesus. So this was not only then the economic, financial, administrative hub, this became a Christian hub for that area. When you look a little bit further in church history, you even find that there was a very major and significant ecumenical council. So it was a gathering of many leaders from churches that happened in 431 AD. So this is hundreds of years afterwards and even hundreds of years after the written, the writing of Revelation. But then as they, the Christians continued to grow and churches scattered and people and met, leaders debated and deliberated. Ephesus was still a touch point in that century. And so all that's to say, we're kind of looking at something that is past Paul's time and even past Paul's letter to Ephesus. But we're also looking at something that precedes eventually a church that does continue to exist for quite a while, hundreds of years. But I don't know if you've been there before, 
Uh, Ephesus now, it's, it's uh, where the church used to be. I mean, where there used to be a bay, uh, silt and, and dirt and all kinds of things. It's completely filled it in. So that city is no longer by the bay. And that church certainly does not exist anymore, which again kind of points to how, you know, when we mention churches live, churches die, uh, but ultimately it's about the kingdom of God. And every church probably has its usefulness. And it's not about the church living forever, but it's about the gospel going forth and the kingdom of God expanding and going forever. But anyway, that's Ephesus, really important city. I'm, I'm really trying to emphasize that, that this is not insignificant, that the revelation begins with this city when it's going to share this exhortation to seven separate churches, that it begins here. And from here, really, then all the other cities kind of have a connection going forward. So let's keep going here. Let's look at this. The first part was Christ, right, in verse 1. This is where he was mentioned and connected to Revelation 1. The second part is the praise that is offered to this church. I'll go ahead and read a few verses for us. Verses 2 and 3, and then also verse 6. The Bible says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently, and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse 6. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Okay, so what is Jesus saying to this particular church? Well, the, there's a lot of things that he commends them for. He says a lot of things about them that are worthy. A lot of things about them that you would feel pretty good about. That when you hear this from your Lord, that's meaningful, that's wonderful. So remember, Jesus walks amongst the, the candlesticks. Jesus is amongst his church, so he knows them. Not only does he know them from afar, not only does he know them in relationship, but he also knows what they've done. He's seen everything that the Ephesians have tried to do. He's not abandoned them, and he also can see how hard they've labored, that they toiled and they endured, that they were patient. This is long-term here in terms of their faithfulness to God. They've been working super hard. They've not given in. When Paul called them in the letter to Ephesians, you know, to, to, to walk as children of light, when he called them to walk in love, when he called them to care for one another, when he called them to seek reconciliation, when he called them to use their gifts and grow in maturity, They've done this. They've continued to do it. Ministries abound and have continued, even at this time when the revelation was written. He also said this, how you cannot bear with those who are evil. Well, to know good and evil means that you're theologically discerning, right? So you can look at a pagan culture and go, okay, this is something that's honoring to God. This is something that's sinful and wrong. This is something that we should do. This is something we should not do. So they had a clarity about them in the pagan culture, in a worldly culture, to know what is honoring and pleasing to Christ. Their doctrine was sound, and they never let up from what had started their church in the first place in terms of what you're able to see. In fact, they have tested those who call themselves apostles, and the ones that were not true apostles, not true teachers, the false prophets in their midst that come through and are ravenous trying to devour the sheep, they knew, they called them out and said, get out of here, right? So this was a discerning 
church. They probably practiced biblical church discipline. They probably did all of these things as they made decisions to make sure that the sheep in that church were safe. Okay, so this is a good church in terms of everything that they were doing. And this particular heresy of Nicolaitans was called out as well, which is mentioned in the letter to Pergamum. And so we'll get there more and talk about that then. This is mentioned that you've been enduring patiently, bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. You know, a lot of times when a church has a lot going on, people are burdened and weary in their hearts. But apparently they've not. Apparently this is a group of people that have continued to, to serve faithfully, continued to make disciples, continued to preach the gospel, continued to be a presence in the midst of that community, in that pagan capital and have been used by God in many ways. So you're looking at this going, okay, well, this must be one of those churches that doesn't have a criticism, right? This must be one of the churches that doesn't have something that the Lord Jesus disapproves of. Not true. Let's go on to verse four. Here was the criticism that was given to them. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Let me see that again. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember the beginning, how Jesus is walking around them. Jesus is walking near them. Jesus knows their works. Jesus is near. That's a Jesus is for you kind of scenario, right? Verse four says, now Jesus is against you. If you want somebody to be against you, the last person you want would be Jesus. Jesus is against you. It's not that Jesus doesn't like what you're doing or that Jesus finds what you're doing questionable. Jesus is against you, church in Ephesus. Why? Because you have abandoned the love. The idea here is this. Abandoning is a deliberate walking away. It's not where maybe, you know, you're going through a season in which maybe you're kind of tired or ignorant of what's going on. Or maybe, you know, you're kind of just kind of getting a little lazy or you're getting a little... Uh, you know, kind of just routine and you just, you know, kind of a little bit of a backslide. No, the Ephesians, even in all of their ministry, busyness, and faithfulness, they're intentionally choosing to walk away from Christ. And how they're walking away, then you got to ask, is not by their busyness and faithfulness in ministry, because they're doing this. They were commended for this. It's not that they're saying, okay, we're canceling all of our ministries. We're going to stop serving the community. We're going to stop making disciples. We're going to stop preaching God's word. No, they're not doing that. They're doing all of that. But what the church in Ephesus is guilty of is that they're doing all of this, but that their relationship with their Lord and Savior is not close, is not intimate. It is not near. So Jesus is near to them, but they are not drawing near to him. Now, we're going to come to this in a little bit when we get to the application part. But you know what? This is the reason why I think this letter really connects in a, and, and it matters to many of us. Because if you've been a Christian or a churchgoer or a tender or raised in a Christian family or have been around Christian people and friends and culture, you could totally do churchy things and be faithful with Christian activity and still be guilty like the Ephesians of having Jesus being against you because you are choosing to abandon the love that you have for him. They're not mutually exclusive. 
In fact, in the church in Ephesus, it is clearly the case that both are coexisting, that you have people that are faithful in activity and in ministry, persevering through difficult times, not giving up, not giving in, giving generously in everything that they're doing, but yet they are choosing to walk away from Christ. They are choosing to not have a relationship with him. So all that's to say is, first and foremost, there could be an outward obedience, but then there could also be an inward rebellion in the same person, in the same church. So if you guys were born and raised around Christians in a Christian family, attended FCBC Walnut most of your life, well, guess what? This letter is for you because we recognize that we're not Jesus. Our hearts can possibly go in this way, even when we're faithful. So please listen carefully. Now, that's not practically to me per se, but listen to the word of God as it is being preached. Sorry about that. I did want that to be very big letters. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. I mean, what might that look like in our ordinary relationships? Because this is what we're talking about here, right? So you're busy on the outside, but there's a distancing in your relationship. Maybe it's when you're hanging out with your friends, but whatever is going on, you're not fully engaged. So you're on your phone playing a game or doing something else. Well, so you're there. Yeah, you can't say that you didn't show up and you're not paying for food or you didn't give a ride, but you're not really there for your friends. You're, you're there, but hey, what happened? What, what, oh, yeah, I wasn't paying attention. I'm, you know, just leveling up here. So I, I don't have time. Maybe it's a family meal where, you know, this is like the requirement, right? It's, it's, a, it's a nice thing to do to eat with your parents and your you know, siblings or uncles and aunties when they come to town or something. But again, you're, you're not really engaging. You're not listening. You're kind of, you know, even grumbling. Oh man, I have to go here. You know, I, I'd rather do something else. This restaurant again. And you're not really giving yourself to whoever it is that you're spending time with. Maybe it's even a, a school group work meeting. Maybe it's even a work gathering or celebration. Maybe it's anything that you're a part of on the outside, but then in your heart, you know that the last thing that you care about or want to be invested in is this. You could put up a good front because guess what? You're polite and respectful and kind, but hey, they're not Jesus. So they don't know your heart, but see, Jesus is the one that's walking amongst the lampstands. Jesus knows this church. We can all be guilty of that. Well, there then is an application. And the application can be found in verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So it's threefold. You're called to remember where you came from in a better time and season in your relationship with Christ, personally and corporately. You're called to repent. You notice that that's it. That In that verse, there's just this one action that's tucked in by these two longer phrases. It's just a single word, repent, turn, change, walk the opposite way. 
in the passage here speaks of do the works you did at first, but you know, just to alliterate, then you return, you go back to you strive to head back to that time in that season when you can recall that there was a deeper relationship with God, both personally, but then also corporately in terms of your identification and belonging and commitment to the local church. When it was much more than an obligation, when reading the Bible was more than just, I'm supposed to do this because that makes me a good Christian, or I'm supposed to do this because other people are, or I'm supposed to do this because I have this checklist and I'm tired of always just finishing one quarter of it every single year. There's more than that. So think, for those of you guys that are Christians, think of a time when the fact that you can have a relationship with God, even though you don't deserve it, is because he loved you and you believe that with all of your heart. He loved you. He died on the cross for you. Not just he died on the cross, like you can preach that or teach that or share that from a pulpit. He died on the cross for you and it was undeserved. Maybe it was during a season of your life when there was no one else around. It seemed like everyone's left you or abandoned you in some way and there was no help or no hope but Christ you knew was there and you clung to him you read his word not because you had to you read his word because that's how he speaks you didn't pray just because it was the obligatory dinner prayer or the one thing that you say so you could feel a little better about yourself before you knocked out after a long day of whatever it is because you knew that you needed to tell God what he already knew you needed to tell him because that's what it looks like when you have a relationship and you're pursuing it with somebody. You needed to tell him with your own words and your own mind and your own heart what you're going through. You need to tell him and ask him for help because he already knows. So finally, you're reciprocating. You're telling him what he already knows because that's what surrender looks like, that there's no secrets. Think about that time when you came to church, not just because it was a scheduled thing in your calendar and you could barely set off enough alarms to wake up for it, but that you came because you realized that if I want to feel like I'm part of a family, here they are. There is no one else with whom I share a spiritual family relationship with where we share the same heavenly father, where we sing about the same gospel and where we live for the same mission. There is nowhere else. How can I miss corporate worship? How can I miss our time together? How can I miss being at fellowship on a Friday or a prayer meeting on a Wednesday? Because when I miss it, I miss out because I belong there. I don't know about you, but when I think about my life, I have different seasons of that. And as you live long enough, you will have many seasons of that. And so this call to remember, it's not that you have to go back to one particular one, but remember when your relationship with Christ is close and that your relationship with the church community was close. You don't need to compare to anyone else. It's not like it necessarily feels the same or look the same, or you have the same number of friends or you did the same number of things, but when it was close and you knew it was close, because if some of you are hanging on by a thread, maybe at being a Christian, that meant that at some point you were not hanging by a thread. At some point you were close because Christ drew you near and you knew that.
And that even might be what you're trying to hang on to now because you knew where you were. You knew what he did. You knew how it was at some point in time, even if it was brief, you knew. Remember that. By the way, a lot of the spiritual disciplines start to kind of make sense when you do this. I know we don't all do the same thing. I certainly don't do many things. But for those of you guys that, let's say, write down a prayer journal or just journal a period or write down your thoughts, it helps you remember because we forget so quickly. Maybe you blog. You know, maybe you just type things out somewhere. That's all okay. But the idea is that when you chronicle the works of God, it helps you remember. When you chronicle and, re and, and are able to record down answered prayers and desperate times and passages that mean something to you, it helps you apply this remember. When being a Christian was joyful, when being part of a church was an honor, when serving God was the greatest joy and that you would push everything else aside. See, you can't manufacture that, although some people try. And I think in Ephesus, they did it really well. But it's different when it comes from within. And it's different when it's because of God, not where you're trying to earn his approval or you're trying to earn the approval of others by your works. I want to share this quote with you then on the second command to repent. This is by Danny Aiken. He's the president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He shared this. In calling for the Ephesians to repent, Jesus reminds them that labor is no substitute for love. Purity is no substitute for passion. And deeds are no substitute for devotion. You see the contrast between the first thing and the second thing? The first thing is something that you do. The second thing is the fruit of when you live in the presence and the relationship with Christ. It comes from the inside. What you do, labor, keeping purity, committing good deeds, that in of itself will never save. But if you have trusted in Christ and you are being saved, even as you were justified sometime in the past, but continue to be sanctified now, the fruit of the spirit bears itself in your life in love, in greater passion, and in deeper devotion. So return. Do the works you did at first. And maybe... When you guys are in your community groups, you could share a little bit about that when it's your time. Um, and maybe it helps to know that it's not just what you did, but it was remembering what God had did that led you to live a certain way, that led you to do certain things, that led you to pursue certain disciplines and seek certain people in your life. That vulnerability, that surrender, that openness, you couldn't create that. It was the Holy Spirit moving you, and it was Jesus leading you. This is so important because the end of that short little verse, the warning says this, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So this is speaking to a church here, okay? But the idea here is, again, a church is only as useful as it is a part of God's plan for his kingdom. 
If you go to Ephesus today, you will not find where the Ephesians worshiped and gathered because it wasn't about the church. And that actually came true. And we don't know if it's because it was a direct connection to this passage per se, but that church doesn't exist anymore. Time stands gone, but the gospel goes forth, right? And we get to hold that today. So then here's the promise. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is from Revelation 19 and 20. All of these are a connection, right? In the beginning, Adam and Eve were created, tree of life, tree of knowledge of good and evil. It was a tree of life that would keep them. It was a tree of life that represented that symbol of, of God's ever faithfulness and power and sovereignty over his creation, how he could provide for them, how he could sustain them. Adam and Eve before the fall had the closest, most intimate, the nearest personal relationship with their God. They saw him face to face. He walked amongst them the way that Jesus walks among the lampstands, but it was in person. See, the promise is a return to that. That if a church is faithful, here's the promise. That not only will they be near the tree of life, they will be nourished by the tree of life. And eternal life is not a number. Eternal life is not just an open-ended arrow. Eternal life is living walking, worshiping, thriving in the presence of an eternal God who gives life. This is what is being promised. And if you recall, Adam and Eve had no shame in the beginning. It was actually sin that brought shame because sin led to guilt. All that will be gone. That's the promise. A relationship with God that's intimate, that's close, personally, corporately, as his children forever. Imagine that. It is definitely worth not only just knowing about, but it's worth pursuing in this life. And that doesn't come from doing good deeds, living a pure life. All of that comes because you want to be near to Jesus and you're being filled with the Spirit. And he is at work in you. He is at work when you gather. He is at work when you use your gifts. He is at work when you go out into the community. He is at work in and through you as he conforms you to the image of Christ and makes you into his likeness. And the joy and the memories that come from that. I want to read this passage from Ephesians 3 as the closing here. Because I think it's very fitting, especially knowing that Revelation came after this in terms of a generation. Paul wrote this to the people in Ephesus. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, 
and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What did we learn from this letter? That if you didn't have God, if you were not filled with the fullness of God, you could have a very busy Christian life and you will miss everything. Notice how Paul didn't pray for them to be excellent in ministry, to be excellent in what they do, to be excellent in administration and busyness and packed schedules and faithfulness. His entire prayer before transitioning to the application half of the letter of telling them to walk in a manner worthy of their calling is have more of God, know more of Christ, be filled with more of the Holy Spirit in your life. You cannot have more, you cannot want more, and you cannot settle for less as the people of God. Here are the questions that you can consider when you go into your groups. And the goal isn't to get all the answers to your questions as you can imagine from a message like today's. It's the, the questions hopefully can stir up some conversation and some thinking. But I do hope that you will consider one question or some aspect of today and drive it down to where you're at personally and be able to consider an application. So the first question is actually two parts because for some of you who are Christians in this room, part A, for some of you who are not Christians in this room, part B, okay? And in any given room, there's always a mix. One A, if you're a Christian, do you find that you obey out of love for Jesus or just doing what you're supposed to do? Reflect on when you fell in love with Jesus. What specific things did you do and how did you live your life to grow closer to him? Let's talk about that. And even if maybe there are things that you don't do anymore and you wish you did, or you kind of hit yourself for not continuing or not persevering or quitting something, this is not the guilt time. This is merely the remember time. Remember, it's not a bad thing to recall and remember because it points to the faithfulness of God. Okay, just remember. 1B, if you're not a Christian, what would encourage you to want to have a relationship with God? Just be honest. What would wanting a relationship with God, why would you want that? And if you have any questions, talk to the people in your group. If you have any questions, talk to Gabe, you know, talk to me. It's, it's a very straight up, simple question. Why would you want to have a relationship with God from today's passage? Second question, how can you apply the threefold application to remember, repent, and return? You don't have to come up with a long list. You don't have to come up even with one for each. Just one thing, be specific. Name it and pray for it and commit to it. Now you're not doing it just to you know, add a feather in your cap or you know, to earn something. You're just doing it because this is actually what repentance and returning looks like. It helps to be specific. It helps to be practical. And it helps to actually be something that's a next step that you would do, you would commit to, that you would pursue when you leave this place. And the message is today, or the title of today's message is pursue your first love. It's not know about your first love. It's not learn about your first love. It's not remember your first love. It's pursue your first love. So what are you going to do? Okay, let me go ahead and pray and then send you guys back out in community groups. Uh, Father, we thank you, Lord, for tonight. Thank you, Lord, for this opening letter to the seven churches, to Ephesus in particular, but yet 
I know for me has certainly a lot of relevance um, and application. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Father, for sending your son, Jesus, into a world that didn't want him, to a people that didn't desire him. But Father, that he came to this world to pay a heavy price and to be a ransom for people that you wanted to save and that you wanted to be fully cleansed and that you wanted to restore to a right relationship with you again. So we thank you, Lord, for those of us that have trusted in Jesus, Father, that he came for us and we can remember when that became real for us. We also turn to you tonight knowing, Father, that we have all failed in some ways, whether it's in our personal devotion to you, whether it's in our commitment to using our gifts and serving the body of Christ and becoming invested in a spiritual family, whether it's even our call to make disciples in the world. It's so much easier just to be collegians who are interested in what we're interested in. We've all failed. But Father, help us to repent and to return to you one step at a time, to seek and pursue that first love that was initiated by you and help us to love because you loved us first in our words and our actions. We thank you, Father, for tonight, again, for the privilege of gathering. And we do ask, Lord, that you be with us as we break out into our community groups to share and to talk. We pray, Father, that we can know each other better. I know that there are new people in our midst, they're old friends, but certainly meeting like this is always different and refreshing nowadays. And so we pray, Father, for you to open up our hearts and allow us to bless one another with our lips and what we have to say. Help us to pray, help us to draw near to you. And we thank you, Father, that you are always faithful, more faithful than we could ever strive to be obedient. And we ask God for your grace and for your hand to be upon us. We do pray, Lord, that you will call us back to be amongst your people. Help us to do that with the steps that we choose to take in your perfect timing and help us to pursue and seek you with one another. Let's end with this chorus. I'm coming back to the heart of worship, and it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it, when it's all about you, all about you, Jesus. One more time. I'm coming back to the heart of worship when it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing I've made it when it's all about you. All about you, Jesus. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.